All I wanted to do with this is in reference to last week that we talked about the, the whole spread of the Eastern wing of Catholicism, which ultimately became called Eastern Orthodox, okay? But how that spread to, um, or how it grew <clears throat> in Ukraine, in Russia, um, primarily that's where its strength is. So I don't even have one of those in front of me, but I'll try to remember what's in it. I just saw this, and it was on um, online in some history, what's going on right now. And so I noticed that I think it was, it's been in since last Wednesday night, the um, Ukrainian Orthodox Church has seceded from um, the head of the Moscow Church. Okay, I think the two pictures here, the two pictures you have there, and by the way, you'll notice those guys are duded up more than the Catholics. Um, I mean, they, the, the Orthodox are really into, you know, the gold and silver and all kinds of stuff. Um, the first picture is the guy that's in Constantinople or today in uh, Istanbul. But he's not considered, Orthodox doesn't have quite the hierarchy that um, Catholicism has. So... I think they even mention it, the, the first guy's picture, he's first among equals, they call it. He is the current ruler of orthodoxy, but the patriarchs, they call them, of Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria, whatever they've got left in some of those countries, and like Kiev, Moscow, they are equals. Um, they don't answer to each other. And I think for certain periods of times then, they each share their rulership or whatever you want to call it. The second guy <clears throat> is the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, is it uh, Kirill or something like that? Okay. He works very closely and has always worked very closely with Putin ever since Putin came to power 20 some years ago by I guess back 10 15 20 years ago our intelligence and Western intelligence believed that he was likely a KGB member though he was he still is the head of the Russian Orthodox Church because um, he works hand in glove with Putin and the Russian authorities. Whatever they do, he does his best to bring the faithful, those in Russia that care about being a part of a church, um, to cooperate. So he's been a very faithful, decades-long mouthpiece for the Russian government. Okay, So <clears throat> anyway... I just thought with what we had talked about last week and then this week's um, rupture, whatever you want to call it, between the Ukraine Orthodox 
and the Orthodox uh, in Russia, headed by that Kirill or whatever his name is, um, makes maybe a little bit of this history that we're slogging through relevant. Um, <clears throat> okay. We forgot to pray, didn't we? Let's go ahead and pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, thank you for the day. We don't know, Lord, all that you may have spared each of us from today, but you safely have enabled us to be here tonight, and we pray once again that your presence would be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. <clears throat> I got to try to cover a fair amount of ground today or tonight. Um, not necessarily much in the way of review, except um, slightly. Um, we want to look at the rise of the Methodist movement beginning in England. All right, that took place in the 18th century, 1700s. But before that, um, I think it helps for us to know what the religious temperature was at the time Methodism um, rose up. In fact, a lot of Europe. We have to go back again just time-wise to uh, the same centuries as the Reformation, 1500 to about 1700, 1690, somewhere. There's something that I didn't mention um, going on nearly simultaneously with the Reformation. Now it seems like the Reformation would take all the, suck all the oxygen out of the room. But in parallel with the Reformation and in some ways I'm not sure which inspired which, okay, but the Renaissance or another name for it, the age of reason parallels what was going on in the Reformation. Um, <clears throat> now, anybody know what the Renaissance is all about? You will have today, by the way, it has nothing to do with Renaissance fairs. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, um, those are just bizarre, but. Um, Anybody know anything about the Renaissance or, or, if you want to call it, the Age of Reason? Renaissance means rebirth. Okay. Now, um, this was brought about by a couple of things. The Age of Reason or the Renaissance is, frankly, the clearest thing we can see in what we're looking at at church history. And church and secular history had not really separated much. Um, but we're looking at, during the time of the Reformation, other things going on in the realm of science, art, music, philosophy, and so forth, that laid the foundation, I mean the perfect foundation, for secularist humanism today. We're dealing with it today, okay? There were at least um, 
two or three things that kind of kicked off the Reformation. One, or not the Reformation, the Renaissance. One was useful to both the Reformation and the Renaissance. The printing press. Ideas could quickly spread. I don't know what it would be like that the only manuscript or book or tract or anything was hand copied. Never printed. I mean, and mostly monks did it. Monasteries. And they, they, so there were some people who, that's all they did. They just copied manuscripts. And there were penalties, of course, if you made a mistake. Um, so ideas then were necessarily spread slower. But with the printing press, just as it aided Luther to get his 95 theses out, the ideas of humanism and secularism got out just as quickly. Second thing that um, really aided them was were, were all the scientific discoveries that took place in the 1500s 1600s, 17, but mostly 15 and 16. Things like upending the idea that the solar system revolved around the earth. The fact was, you know, it was discovered, no, the sun is what is stable or, you know, located. The, the earth, everything else revolves around that. Okay, now, uh, some of those kinds of ideas um, people were branded heretics for. Galileo, of course, was banned for making the, you know, coming up with the idea that the earth revolved around the sun, not the other way around. Um, for instance, I can't remember now his name, but the, um, during the same period of time, the currents in the ocean were discovered that there, was, there were global currents. And um, what tipped off this scientist, and I can't, Johan somebody, um, was a, a line out of the Psalms. Can't remember which Psalm it is, but it talks about God's footsteps being unknown, but also speaks of the pathways in the seas. And that little phrase, the pathways in the seas, got him thinking. And, you know, he's discovered the, as much as he could, of the currents <clears throat> in the ocean that circulated everything. Of course, another major scientist and discovery was Isaac Newton and gravity. That gravity... Um, really explained lots of things as far as the orbits and all kinds of stuff. Um, the interesting thing is, almost without fail, every one of these um, major scientific discoveries were made by devout Christians, these scientists, who were using reason 
to support faith. Okay? Which is right. We, um, we should look at, use our reason, our dis- uh, abilities to discover and so forth, to further buttress the truth of revelation that God made this and that it all makes sense and it works together and how intricate it is and precise it is. So f- during, while you have um, the early part of the Reformation, which is reinforcing the idea that faith is supreme and reason is a handmaiden of faith, okay? And that the human condition is one of fallenness and sinfulness and that primarily, therefore, this world and all that God has given us in his scripture and revelation, this world is the time to prepare for the next one. Okay? Because we're lost. All right? Now, with the rise of the discovery of some major scientific discoveries, probably one more thing that didn't help the church, hurt the church, helped the Renaissance, were the, through the 1600s, you had almost perpetual war in Europe over between the Catholics and the Protestants. Who was going to stay Catholic? What nation would be? And they finally ended up in the Thirty Years' War, went from 1618 to 1648, and the the peace that they came up with there seems like it was called the Peace of Westphalia. But at any rate, the decision was finally made that we'll live and let live in this way. The Protestants. Well, the king decides. So if the king's a Protestant, you're all Protestants. If the king's a Catholic, you're a Catholic. And it switched back and forth. I've already told you that was a mess itself. But at least they... Now, there would be internal rumblings in those countries where if the Protestant had ruled for 20 years and then a Catholic comes, well, the Protestant goes underground and they hatch plots and they're doing all kinds of stuff. And when the Catholics came back, it just flipped and kept going. But at least the European-wide or massive battles like the Thirty Years' War ceased. But to the person who is a philosopher, a thinker, well-read, well-to-do among the elites, um, watching Christians burn each other at the stake and fight each other and so forth, and then turning and realizing all of these brand new scientific discoveries and our, our world, you know, it's just like your head's exploding with all that's going on. We need to put aside this superstitious stuff, this religion. Re- look at what we've discovered just with this. Do I need priests? Do I need mumbo-jumbo from a priest? Do I need mysterious stuff like this bread and wine turns into actual blood? And No. Listen, look what we're able to do. 
you see where how that caught fire so within a fairly well I guess you'd say it's a long time but in a in the time of 150 to 200 years instead of faith being primary and reason being the servant of faith reason replaced faith okay and a couple things went with that there's it's limitless what we can do we can solve our own problems we can discover things we can find out things we don't know now and we also and this goes hand in hand but another major position that the renaissance had was you know we're not so bad this business that we're just scum wretch worm sinners we're, I'm tired of that we've had that for a thousand fifteen hundred years look what we're able to do we're not so bad okay so that was flipped now one of the things that Renaissance also did um, it reached back to the golden supposedly golden days of the Greek and Roman philosophers okay so it was a restoration of really pagan but surprisingly reasonable if you want to use it reason now here's the interesting thing the the Renaissance people were not atheists they were opposed to atheism but they just had a completely different God um, they they re they reduced him down and what they really laid was the foundation for what's called deism and we'll get to that in just a minute um, there's a lot about the Greek philosophers that isn't nuts when we look at philosophy I majored in philosophy in college I probably did me a little bit of good but um, the truth of the matter is man by searching as Job said cannot find God we cannot reason as humans vertically we can reason horizontally but we can't reason vertically uh, vertically only God can give that's why we call it revelation it's uh, God gives us information knowledge that we could not have any other way but he gave it to us and we that's faith but it's also reason but the idea then <clears throat> that we could accomplish things on our own we don't need we've got everything we need right here our heads and our wills okay um, now so they dredged up philosophy from the Greeks and the Romans I just read a book um, it was well I was very grateful that it was a short one um, because it just got unbearably boring but I I really when I start reading a book unless it's really a stupid book I just I got some bizarre I can't not finish it because I always feel like yeah, I didn't finish it 
So I finish it, and then, you know, I never look at it again. But I was really stunned, but it makes some sense, at how the founding fathers of America, um, you'd think that the primary reading they had, and for a few they did, was the Bible. But not for the most of them. Most of them read Seneca, Cicero, Plato, Aristotle. Those were the guys, especially on how to form a government and how to rule and administer. That's where, if you read even their addresses and read you know, their speeches, read their letters, they're always talking about Cicero and you know, he was a Roman philosopher and Seneca and uh, Marcus Aurelius and a lot of Roman philosophers along with Greek philosophers, okay? Um, but that's because they were at the tail end of the Renaissance and they were heavily affected by it. Now, let me get back to then the new religion that was growing up parallel to the Reformation and Protestantism, Lutheranism, all that that we've been through. This new kind of religion was a sophisticated religion. Now, I'm being sarcastic, but they looked at it. It's sophisticated, it's learned, it's rational. It's not emotional. It's not, you know, gap-toothed Appalachia whooping in the aisles. You understand what I mean? It's upper crust. And, but again, they did not believe that there is no God. There's a God. But he's, the best illustration, I suppose, or metaphor is, he's the watchmaker God. And by that they meant... He built a perfect creation. They, they didn't have any problem with creation. He created the world. Darwin hadn't come along yet. He created the world. works perfectly. We're in the business of discovering all of it. But like a watchmaker who winds it up and leaves the room, never to return, and the clock just keeps on ticking because it's so perfectly ordered but God is not individually involved in this world. He set it in motion, created it, lets it run, but he doesn't, he is not involved. He's aware of things that go on. Uh, very rarely he may involve himself, but not in day-to-day -day individual lives. Okay? That's deism. Now, um, I read for the second time today something I read probably 15 years ago. And so don't start throwing rocks at me yet. Technically, America was not founded. The colonies were, Massachusetts, or, but when 1776, technically we were founded by almost exclusively deists. Okay? Washington was a deist. Thomas Jefferson was a worst deist. They did not believe 
in miracles? Benjamin Franklin said he had always had trouble and still had trouble with the idea that Jesus was possibly a person of divine origin and that he wasn't really convinced that he was, but he figured in the next life he'd find out. I'm betting he did. Um, Jefferson, using a, what would be the forerunner of a Stanley knife, cut every single solitary miracle out of the New Testament, of the Gospels, where it says Jesus heals you. Cut it out. I've seen pictures of it, of his chopped up New Testament. Now, here's the deal. With what we'll study probably by next week, or maybe even yet a little bit tonight, America became a Christian nation. Now, granted, Christian principles undergirded it. And the Puritans and the Pilgrims and the real early Baptists who were fleeing persecution in England so they could live free came here and started with, obviously, a distinctly Christian flavor. But by the time you get to the founding of the country in the late 1700s, the Puritanism and the Pilgrims were already fundamentally dead. I can't get into all, maybe we will next week or the week after that, but you had the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists who were all, um, Congregationalists were really Puritans, but at any rate, you had all these people who, by the time the third generation grew up of the founders of the 1620s, even the second generation they started having trouble because there were too many second-generation people who didn't have a conversion experience. And so they literally had to call, they, they called them, they came up with what they called a new covenant. Okay? It meant that, because remember, with the Puritans in Massachusetts, church and state were one and the same. So, if you're not in the church, you can't participate in the community, in the society, and run for dog catcher, okay? So, how do we include these people who don't really even profess to be Christians and don't seem to even live like it? They're the children of the original Puritans who were, you know, hardcore. What do we do with them? Well, you come up with a new covenant, they called it where you allow them to participate, I think there were a few things they, they couldn't vote on, but they could still be part of, of the church, thus the society, if they quasi, you know, yeah, okay, I'm Christian's fine. Um, it's about like, you know, I guess signing up, you know, for the military, <laughs> you know, Protestant, Catholic, Jew, other. Um, okay, I'll check Christian. But they weren't Christians, okay? Um, and so early on, you have what always has taken place, the Bible's full of it, 
It's like they always have said, or has been said, first generation has the doctrine in their mind and the experience in their heart. The second generation has the doctrine in their mind and they don't have the experience in their heart. The third generation has neither. That's always been human history. Um, I was watching something the other day. Reagan made the statement, you know, we're one generation away from tyranny. Um, I think that's true. On the other, on the religious side, we are really, every new generation that comes into the world is a brand new crop of depravity. <laughs> okay? And if we don't conquer that in their hearts through the gospel, we're headed for absolute debauchery. Okay? So we're always fighting that. Well, by the time the founders came along then, the fire of the Puritans and the, those who came over had gone out. Country was populous, it was um, financially secure, rising fast, growing quickly. They don't need God. Reason and rationalism and deism then was thick in America and England and Europe. Okay? Now, so, not America was slower than England. England was ahead of America in its march downward. England was almost completely absorbed with deists. The deists were the priests and the archbishops and the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, the people that ran the Church of England um, were deists. Um, the idea that you had a, such as a born-again experience was laughable. Laughable. England, um, in the 18th century, and I'll, I'll, I'll just take 30 seconds to say this. Coming off of the 1600s, the English had turned their backs on Puritanism. Puritanism, a lot of them came to America, but a lot of them stayed there. They began to flourish. Puritanism and pietism, these better, you know, they were not the state church. They really believed you got to have something in your heart. you got to know it. And you live it. Okay? Well, they made some pretty dramatic increases in England. They got themselves elected to Parliament. There were enough of them that they ended up holding a trial and beheading Charles I, the king. Okay? And then a Puritan, Oliver Cromwell, took over. And he didn't call himself a king nor a throne. Um, they called it the Commonwealth. And it was an attempt at real democracy, even more than having a parliament, because they had no king. But that ended up in you know big civil war, and I, he only lasted, I think, 11 years or 12 years. And then you end up with Charles II. They re restored the throne, restored the king, and swung back this other direction. You have then um, coming back, the, the, the settling down after all that, and you have one of the most hated 
uh, Archbishops of Canterbury, um, Loud, L-A-U-D, Laud was his name, okay? And he hated the Puritans. And since the Puritans had caused the English Civil War and all this kind of junk that had gone on in Cromwell, he was going to, we're going to stamp them, get rid of them, okay? They had it. <clears throat> that threw more people over here. Um, but it also continued the downward slide just of the religious temperature in England. It is said that uh, in the early 1700s, every third in London, I don't know who counted this, but every third door average was a gin house, okay? Or a, they called them a dram shop, or we'd call them a bar, okay? Um, women um, selling their babies' clothes, in some cases, babies, to get a drink of gin. A historian from that time made this statement um, using a capital K and a capital M said, the real ruler in England was King Mob. It was just violence constantly. And the guilds, which were the unions really, um, they would be battling in the streets. Poverty was rampant. There wasn't anything like, um, you know, a safety net at all. You had the workhouses or whatever. But poverty was terrible. The elites, you know, were filthy rich. The peasants, you still had that kind of setup. Um, England, now here's a parallel we don't have time to get into, but I think it's a fascinating parallel. The 1700s were upheaval in England, upheaval in France. In France, you had the French Revolution where they killed num unnumbered people. Even the people who started the French Revolution who were guillotining all of the nobility got guillotined themselves, okay? They got rid of the church. Catholicism was the church in France. It was done away with then. It's still there. But from that point to, to now, from 1789, storming the Bastille the, and the French Revolution overthrowing them, they, end, they took churches, state control of them. They own them now. Okay, Right 40 miles across the channel, same kind of upheaval. There was all kinds of intrigue about what, who should be the real king. You, I can't keep track of any of this with England. But you got the Tudors, you got the Stuarts, you got the Windsors now, but you have all these dynastic families, okay? Um, and there was always intrigue as to whether, you know, they, they even, I, I don't think it was 10 years ago, they discovered what they think might have been some Richard somebody kid, 12-year-old, buried under the Tower of London who was supposedly due to go to the throne, but he, they bumped him off and put somebody else. So it was mayhem, okay? But in England, they had a revival, the Wesleyan Revival, absolutely, thoroughly turned England around. 40 miles across the channel, they had a revolution where it was just blood in the streets. Um, and in, interesting then, 